Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today I'm coming to you from New York City, New York, and my special guest, I'm so honored, he's my friend, he's a guitar legend of the highest order. I'm just going to read some stats to get to get us started. Oh. This man, this man, a nine-time ARIA nominee, two-time winner, two-time CMA of Australia winner. He has received the Order of Australia, the role of renown, two of the highest orders, and this man is an official Kentucky colonel. All with a guitar, ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Tommy <laughs> Manuel. Nice to see you, my friend. How you been? Hi, Joe. It's good. I haven't seen you since we cruised down to uh, Jamaica, man. I, I know. And yeah. can you believe, like, like how th it, that wasn't very long ago? And yeah. can you believe, like, how things have changed since, oh, yeah. since we've our, come our back? World, our world is going upside down, you know. Yeah. And, uh, no, we're very lucky. You and I especially, we're fortunate that we're, we're okay. We don't have to you know, go on government uh, assistance. Although, you know, um, once everything shut down, we uh, what I did is I continued to pay the people who work for me right. and, and the government actually gave me a refund to help me out because I'm, nice. I'm a small business and I employ a few people. You employ a lot more than I do. So, but I'm sure you're in the same boat, you know. Yeah. We're... I'm classed as a small business. I don't, I don't know whether you would be or not. I doubt it. But um, uh, the, the government were very organized, and I'm very pleased uh, uh, and, and appreciative of their help for me right. to keep my, my folks on board until we can, you know, right. get out there. Now is, this, now, is this the U.S. government or the Australian government? This is the U.S. government. Oh. I'm, a, I'm a U.S. citizen. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And because a lot of times people like 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 they go the U.S. government and organized are sometimes a contradiction. Exactly, it's like uh, the George Bush Center for you know in intelligence. That's a bit of a right. <laughs> so let me ask you something. Like um, one of the things that you know people have been trying to navigate is, and I've seen people. Uh, do it really well, and I've seen people not do it so well. And there's really no right or wrong answers. Is how do you feel about like you know? I mean, yes, we're faced with maybe a possibly a two year break by the time we can all you know yeah. get back to work. Um, do you feel it necessary to keep like the air in the balloon, as they say? You know, like you know, like constantly. You know, like have you done like a live stream? Have you done a pay per view? Have you yeah. been to keep like in the public eye? Okay, what I did was w when we got shut down early March, I went back to my apartment in San Jose in, in California and I set up my iPhone on a little stand and I got a thing and put on the wall behind me and I do Mondays at 5 p.m. I would play 35, 40 minutes uh, and answer a few questions and say hello to, shout out to a few people. Right. And, then on, and then on Friday, I would do the same thing with Instagram Live right. and I heard about the same amount of people, you know. And so that was a way of me keeping my hand in. But also the first two months of COVID closing us down, I spent nearly every day working on a film and, and because I 
I was uh, the only thing I had was my iPhone. I just wrote the pieces for the film and then recorded them on my um, uh, what do you call it voice messages mm-hmm. uh, thing, and then I text them to uh, my friend Don Harper in Los Angeles, who is the musical director for the film. And it's not like a cheap film. This is a good film. It's got uh, Dennis Quaid and uh, Queen Latifah and a really great cast. And it's a powerful story, Um, a a very strong children's uh, film. And I had a great time doing that. And I would just text him what I'd written. And you'd be surprised how good the steel string acoustic guitar sounds when it's recorded by the iPhone. It's got its built-in compression and all that, and you just play not too hard, and it sounds beautiful. So I I would do that, text it to to Don. He would orchestrate it and put some keyboards and stuff on it. We'd throw it into the film and have a listen to it and see that it works. And then uh, when, when we finished everything, we then went to Nashville and I recorded the whole film in two days. And then the third day we spent with a 22-piece orchestra. And wow. uh, yeah, and we did the whole film in a day. So I finished all the string parts. That kept me busy for a while. Well, you know, it's it's funny because like I'll do like an Instagram video and somebody will ask a question like, well, what mic are you using on the guitar and, and where do you place it and how do you do it? I go, it's the foam. And, you know, exactly. it, it's actually a pretty good microphone. It's, it uh, is. It, you know, and, and, you know, I always say none of the stuff you put on Instagram is legally binding. You know, I save the good mics for when we were doing actual record, you know. And okay. so when you're working on a film, yeah. um, when you're working on a film like that, do you, do you try to get into the headspace as like your, your like, like part of the cast? Because you're you're creating the punctuation yeah. before and after the scene. So do you do you mm-hmm. read the whole script? Do you watch the the, the dailies? Uh, how, no. how do you get into that mindset? Well, they they sent me the whole film, mm-hmm. right? But the but the funny thing was, I got to work on it, and they loved what I was writing, and I was so I was very pleased. But then they want, then they came back to me a couple of weeks later and said, "We've changed the start of the film." The song that you wrote for the start, it doesn't work now. Right. So I had to, what what ended up happening was Don, the, the keyboard guy and the, the producer, he wrote something else for the start of how they changed the film. And that had a few things for me to do. Uh, and the, the song that I wrote for the front of the film was used at the end of the film when the, when, when the young young people that are in the film you know, they walk off into the forest and that, that's when my song comes on. But what I did is I studied each character and I wrote each character their own theme. So when when the little boy in the film is talking with his dad, there's a certain theme. When he thinks back, because in the movie, the boy's mother has died of cancer. And so it's just him and his dad. And... Um, so when the whole family's together, when there's mum and dad and the, the boy, they have a theme as well. And then the little girl uh, with her mother, she has her own theme. Queen Latifah has a theme. Um, and so I tried to do it that way. I tried to give each person their own little theme. And that was fun. And how long 
do these themes have to be? Because a lot of times, you know, when you when you listen to a movie soundtrack, you realize that the songs that they use thirty seconds of, forty five seconds, are actually yeah. completed works. Are you are you yeah. are you working from a completed work, and then they can put as much as they want? Totally, totally, yeah. Um, there were some parts of it where where uh, there was one scene which I had to do the whole thing, so it had to build, go into a more dramatic thing. And then it had to get kind of sad towards the end. So I had to write that whole thing. And that was a good two minutes and 40 seconds of footage. And I had to make it move and, and support what, what was going on on the screen. And um, the best way for me to do that was not to do it in little bits, was to just start with this theme. And then when, when things got dramatic, I, the music got more dramatic with with the characters and then it then it went off into something else and that was that was a long piece and I, I cut that and and wrote it as I was going down and it really worked it was one of the best parts of the, the soundtrack so you know um, the other thing I noticed about writing for film is that less is more right every the moment you start doing all sorts of clever stuff it doesn't work right you know what I mean you know, and, and you've got to you got to hark back to da 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 to to the right. the soundtrack of Jaws. Yeah. What a what a masterpiece that is, and all it is is da 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 da, and that's right. all I want, you know. So I found myself trying to unclever myself, you know, yeah. trying to say. It doesn't need that much. Make it simple and just, you know. And so it's a great lesson to learn. You know, as long as you've got a one good idea, you can kind of go from there. Right. Do you think that's a good lesson in uh, record making as well? I mean, because exactly. I, I think sometimes I'll, I'll overstack my way out of something cool where you just, <laughs> you, just, you just bring it back to the original idea and you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Or if you find yourself stacking ideas on a record, maybe the original idea wasn't good enough to begin yeah. with. You know, yeah. you go back to the drawing board. Do like, you find that when you're writing for yourself, do you find that you have to start cutting it down and getting rid of the fat and just get to the meat and potatoes? You know, um, my friend Leslie West, when he played on my record, my first solo album, that was 22 years ago, and uh, or 20 years ago, whatever it is. Um, he brought some eight by tens and he signed one to me and he goes, and he comes in and he goes, you know, Joe, you'd be my favorite guitar player if you just divide by two. Right. <laughs> and, play, like, and he's like, and I'm like sitting there like, you know, I was 23 years old and I was like stunned and, and it sank into me. So he wrote on a, one of, one of his old eight by 10, you know, Joe play loud, always divide by two. And I've always tried to, I mean, even though I'm a busy player, yeah. I've always tried to, to do that. And, and, it, and it, never, it never fails to, to, to impress me how profound those words were because when, yeah. I, when I go to try to overcomplicate things, it, yeah. it, I, you know. I mean, you're the kind of player that can play anything that comes to your head. Like, like I, I I've, watched, I, I've watched you in person. And, and what was the... What was the moment in your childhood when you realized that you had this ability, this gift that, that, that you know, because they've made a lot of guitars. They've made millions of guitars in, in 
in, in the world. But when you pick one up, it's special. When did you realize you had a, you had a gift for this? I never thought about that. Uh, I was too busy uh, trying to accompany my brother, who was the lead guitar player, right? My right. brother, Phil, who's no longer with us. But um, we were a team straight away. I wanted to be the rhythm player, right. and I I listened to records and learned the chords and so to all sorts of songs. I still do that, you know. Like when I was when we were kids, uh, there were more instrumental music out in the 50s and 60s. There was a lot more instrumental music on the radio, and there were songs that were actually hits, like Apache and Walk Don't Run and and. Uh, right. You know, all that stuff. Sleepwalk, you know, those were Santo and Johnny. Santo and Johnny, and then then came Los Indios Tabajaras with Maria Elena. But my brother and I loved the shadows and the ventures. And so Phil wanted to be Hank, Hank Marvin, and I wanted to be Bruce Welsh, the rhythm player. And Bruce was a was a major writer. And, and, you know, he's still with us, and so is Hank. And, and those guys have really left a great uh, legacy for all of us. And uh, so my younger years, I was the accompanist. So I was, I was there for my brother, and he right. played the lead. But the difference was he was not an outgoing person, and I was. So right. I, I would move around the stage and people would, you know, by the time I was six years old, I was already on TV and um, I knew what it meant to be an entertainer, you know. And the more right. people I met in my early life, the more people said to me, you don't forget you're in the entertainment business. So keep that, you know, be happy, be outgoing, look at the people and all this sort of stuff, you know. And the rest of the family were were not as outgoing as me. But the, the difference is, we could play. You know, when I was six years old, I could play Apache just like the record, right. you know? And so we had some kind of gift right from the start. And um, we, just, we just wanted to be in show business, you know? Right. And I remember being on a bill where they, there'd be 20 acts on you know, all afternoon and then into the evening. And the, the headliner was Chuck Berry or um, uh, an Australian singer called Cold Joy. Um, and, we, and we were on at like three o'clock in the afternoon. We were the early part of the show. But, you know, I'd see the Bee Gees and they were just a little bit older than us. Right. And, you know, and they'd go out there and sing and, and they were funny and quirky and the audience loved them. And, you know, uh, things like my father would would uh, be standing on the side of the stage and if if i took my eyes off the crowd and looked over at him he'd go like that he'd, he'd be really bossy and angry at me if i took my eyes off the off the uh, audience so i learned my craft at a very young age you know um you said the magic word and and a lot of people ask me like you know um, well, you know, Joe, how did you do it? How did you, you know, go from being a kid in Utica, New York to, to, you yeah. know, tour uh, you the know, world and tour the world and, yeah. you know, whatever. And I said, you, first of all, I said, you have to identify what business you're in right off the bat. 
Exactly. Are you in are you in the guitar business? Are you in the blues business? Are you in the rock and roll business? Yeah. Or are you in the entertainment business? Yeah. And I learned that from B.B. King. He was a natural born entertainer. You, you buddy guy walks up. He doesn't have to play, play a note of guitar or sing a note of a song. He just smiles at the crowd and they go crazy. And I'm like, exactly. Work hmm. smarter, not harder, Mr. Bonamassa. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, but that's a gift. How instrumental was, um, you know, because my father also, you know, he was very, he, he always told me, it's like, you could, you know, do this as long as you love it. But, but you know, he taught me to have really good standards and, and you know, exactly. and, and live in, live by every show, you know. I mean, how yeah. instrumental were your parents in, in you know, not only crafting your, your, your act, but, but, but getting you into music in the first place? Well, um, I have to say that my mother um, turned us on to good music. You know, I, um, I used to dance with the washing machine when she put the washing in, the laundry. Uh, I, she said I couldn't resist the And she said sometimes I used to go into the laundry, lean against the, the washing machine and actually fall asleep standing up because it hypnotized me. Right. And so I was always into groove and, and things like that. Um, um, and I watched, I watched people who were successful. I watched them like a hawk, and I right. tried to learn. Like I remember going to see there was a great guitar player in Australia named Dave Bridge, and he he w w kind of made his mark in the late fifties, early sixties. It was the first time I ever saw a Fender Jazzmaster guitar, and it was the first time I ever saw a Fender Showman right. lean back at a right. show. Right. Right? Yeah. You remember those? Piggyback. Right? Yeah, lean back. And I remember sitting there, I was about five, and I was watching him, and my mother was whispering stuff like, see how he holds his head up, see how he stands straight, see how his guitar is all beautiful and shiny, um, uh, see how he smiles. And, you know, she was pointing out everything right. to me, and I'm sitting there taking it all in, you know? Yeah. And... Um, I just thought that was the coolest thing. I was in love with the Fender catalog by the time I was six years old. I slept with it. Mm -hmm. I had that catalog there and I'd look at all the telly, a, a, you know, a white one, a red one, a sunburst. I ended up getting a sunburst, my first telly. It was a 66 custom. Wow, rare guitar. Yeah. 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 And, um, but I wanted, you know, I just wanted to be in show business. You know, the only problem was I was so young that I'd have to go to bed at, uh, at nine o'clock because I'd be exhausted. Right. Because uh, I've been running around all day doing stuff and playing and, and racing to the radio to do an interview and, and, and read the weather report. And, you know, I was like, I was, I was Mr. Show Business. Right. And that's what I wanted to be. And I admired people uh, so much. Like w when we do like an, uh, a, a circus kind of thing where there's a big, big top, and, and there's, a, there's like a, 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 a lights are beautiful. They look like the stars behind us. And there'd be a band and there'd be like three acts on. And we would, we would open the show as, as the, you know, what do you call it? Unusual child act kind right. of thing. And I would watch the host 
and and see how he timed things like setting up a joke you know i i watched i learned and i i saw how he spoke to the audience and all that sort of stuff and all that stuff made a big impression on me and helped me to craft you know craft my 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 uh, stage presence you know um my my manager, um, he and his father, they used to manage Don Rickles. And Don Rickles used to have a great line. He goes, I don't tell jokes. I tell stories in a funny way. A comedian a and, a, and, a, and a, a professional broadcaster could take the same, you know, paragraph and have the room absolutely on the floor yeah. where somebody who's just reading off the page the same words but doesn't have the timing or the ability to look people in the, 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 the audience in the eye and engage them. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real skill. So tell me, like, I always say, like, I try to do five minutes of material in my show. I just try to, you know, I, I like telling jokes. I tell like telling right. stories in a funny way. I do a, a little bit of material. Yeah. I'm, I, I have a twisted sense of humor. Sometimes it gets me in trouble and sometimes it doesn't. Right. What, what do you learn more about, um, about being a showman, like when you, when you have the room at the, in the palm of your hands yeah. and, you can, and you can, like everything you say, it's just working and it's just yeah. magic, or when you bomb, you'd be like, oh, I thought this was right. going to kill, you know. Yeah, and it and didn't, then, uh, right. like, well, I, I think over the years, I've learned a bit about when you need to really hose them out and then when you when you need to bring them real close to you and play something that's really heartfelt and all that sort of stuff, and then you need to send yourself up, you know. And I'd I'd say stuff like uh, early in the show when the audience is still all excited, I'll say stuff like I'm going to play you a song now that I I've played this song in front of the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Edinburgh, and a lot of other pubs. Right. <laughs> you know, stuff like that, right? Right. So th that, that's, that's twice as old as me, that joke. And I'm 65 years old. So, right. uh, but this generation has never heard that. That's yeah. why I can get, I get, all my humor is old fashioned and it's all from the 50s and 60s. I say stuff like the hotel I'm staying at, God, the rooms are so small, the mice have got hunchbacked, you know, <laughs> stuff like right. that, right? And, right. and I rang down to reception. I said, hey, I got a leak in my faucet. And they said, go ahead. Everyone else has. <laughs> so this is humor from the 50s that I learned as a kid. I love being around comedians who had great timing and yes. great things. You know? So there's all that involved as well. And sometimes you know, I, I've learned, one of the things I learned is that you have to be brutally honest and really open and vulnerable on stage right. and that's when love comes to town and so sometimes i'll say i'll tell my audience something that i would normally just tell my wife or something but i'll say to them um hope you're having a good time tonight i don't feel very talkative tonight so i'm just going to play for a while and see if something pops up into my head that i might want to tell you you know so i'm being honest and saying right. I don't have this show scripted. I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. I never write a set list. I walk out and I work out what I'm going to play the first song or the first two songs, and right. then I'm off. And then I'm off. Because I'm a solo player, there's no set list. 
and the, and the, my lighting guy has to follow me and my sound man has to be there as well, you know. So it's fun and it's challenging um, and I love the spontaneity of it. Um, the only time I use set lists is when I, like you, had a band and they need to know what's coming next. But yeah. I used to do stuff where, when I was playing mostly electric guitar. Um, I had like six different tellies. So we would work out the show and then I would work out when the light would go off and we're, I'm in darkness for a second. I quickly changed guitars. The light came back on. Boom. I got a red guitar instead of a white one, you know, right. stuff like that. We worked all that out and that was fun. It's so fun. And honestly, you know, when when I, I always say I'm a 43 year old kid, you know, and I still yep. look at the stuff with the, through that lens, you know. But when I was a kid and I, I saw B.B. King for the first time, I saw um, Albert Collins or I saw Danny Gatton or I saw mm -hmm. whoever, you know, I was hanging out, gate mouthbound. I mean, I was so fixated on the gear and it was like, you know, B.B. had this black Three was well, a three fifty five, but it was his own model. But it was like, it was like the the, the 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 and then you know he had this sparkle coat, and then Danny had this beat up fifty three telly. And you go, man, that's star time. You know what I mean? That's big leagues. You know, yeah. and and it's that impression that you give your audience, and it it's it's so important. It's so important. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's funny to hear your story about how how important. You know, comedic timing is storytelling. The totally. whole, the whole show. I mean, it. You know, comes to mind is 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 Jerry Reed. You know, yeah. and 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 a lot of times his guitar playing gets overlooked because he was a funny guy yeah. and he was on Hee Haw. Yeah, exactly. But he was he was a blazing blazing oh, he was guitar incredible. player. Yeah, yeah, and what a writer, you know. He yeah, was a great writer. He was a great, but it, but Jerry, if you saw him on stage, that was him. He was like that off stage too, right? You know? But he was he was self-deprecating in such a way that he never really said many things that that were heart-rendering. It was always funny, you right? Know? And he'd always send himself up, and he never he used to say, "I'm not a guitar player. I'm a guitar thinker," mm -hmm. you know. Right. But I haven't heard anything that he played that I didn't think was very well thought out and beautiful. Um, uh, on the fly stuff and you know just just beautiful and I wanted to have that kind of relaxed nope not a lot of pressure on me kind of feeling right so you know um, but you know looking at you I I've seen this many times the universe always sends a messenger and when there's a need that messenger will show up and right. that's what I see I see you as a messenger for the younger people because the stuff you're playing and the way you're playing, they haven't experienced it like they, you know, they, they've, they've listened to Metallica or, or someone like that. Right. And as good as they are, they're not doing what, what, what you do. You, you are the, the new messenger, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan came along for the previous generation and showed us, all the great music and he quoted Albert King all the time, right. all that sort of stuff. But he was very important because he was the right. new blues messenger and the whole generation then, you know, I, I'm playing with my brother as a duo and we're, we're playing some of my original music, but mostly like Santana and um, Joe Mathis, mm -hmm. uh, Buck Owens. And we were playing kind of ballsy country 
leaning into the blues a bit, right? Yeah. Uh, so then Stevie Ray comes along and overshadows just about everyone else who was out there because he sounded incredible. His vibrato was to die for, and he, is, he was such a heart person. He, he put all his heart into it. And then so everybody, the name on everyone's lips was now Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right. But you and I both know that he, he was just carrying on. from. He was quoting Albert King all the time. But yeah. And, you know, I mean, like, and, and my thing is I quote Stevie Ray Vaughan and mm -hmm. Eric Clapton, who was, who was my host and my gateway to, um, yeah. and, and on the faster side, Eric Johnson and, and, and uh, you know, I, I loved Hank Garland. I loved Danny Gatton. Yeah, I actually, me like, too. I, I learned from Albert Lee. Albert Lee. And, yeah. you know, there's so many, there's so many people. I mean, do you, you know, I, 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 I have this idea in my head of, there are so many great guitar players that never see the light of the day. Exactly. Until they pick a lane, try to try to stay out of other people's lane, and then and then and then run with it. Right. How how important do you think that is? Uh, I think it's so important that you find. I mean, there's there's no way that you could play the way you're playing at the level you're doing it if you weren't in your lane. You right. know, yeah, yeah. So, and the same for me. You know, I I wish I could play like you, but I can't. I have to be happy playing with me, right? But playing the way I play. So, um, uh, I believe I, I'm 65 now, and I think I was probably 33 around that time when I got happy with being me and been playing the way I play. And I mean, you know, I'm stopped. Stop trying to be Larry Carlton. Stop trying to be George Benson. Stop trying to be Django, blah, blah, blah. Just enjoy those things, but find your, your way, your sound, the way you write, play your songs. You know, that, that came to me in my 30s. Yeah, I was the same. I was about 31 going, I unfortunately, and in, in my, my epiphany was arguably my biggest moment. I invited Eric Clapton to a gig I did at the Royal Albert Hall. And yeah, he came, showed up. Yeah. And, you know, we all we all love the vintage gear, the vintage, you know, the sunburst Les Pauls and, yeah. and this mythical search for that sound. And I was always like, the Beano record was always like my mythical sound. Yeah. Was playing. And he shows up, he's got a brand new Stratocaster. And he's got a brand new Fender Twin, Tweed Twin, and a monster cable that's about 20 feet long. And I'll be it if he didn't sound just like the Blues Breakers. And I, I go, and I go, it doesn't matter what I do, what, how I tweak the knobs or whatever. These are my greatest asset. Exactly. You have to, you have to accept that this is your lot in life, and you play how you play, and you can't be be apologetic for it. And, and it's. No. And it, so, so true, and it, and it takes people. Like I said, it took you to thirty-three. Yeah, you know, exactly. How did, well, how, you know, did you, um, how did you make it out of, a, of uh, like uh, how did you make it from being an Australian star to an international star? What was the leap of faith then? Well, the I I started coming here to America in the eighties because of Chet Atkins. He invited me over, and um, but I didn't play with him then. I played with him 
in the in the mid '90s when he was playing Monday nights at Cafe Milano, which it was a, a venue that Gibson owned. Right. And so, but prior to that, I would fly. I mean, I I worked like a slave uh, when I was in Australia. I was playing seven days a week and seven nights a week. I was doing sessions and all that sort of stuff and TV work, and then then I'd play at night, sometimes two gigs, and then have two hours sleep and get up and do it again. That was what I was like when I was young, uh, and I I had a passion for it, and I knew that the, my only way I was going to get anywhere was to work harder than everybody else. Yeah, and so that's what I did. But I would fly over to LA, and when you live in Sydney, you, the plane leaves at 10 a.m. And you arrive in LA at 9:30 a.m. Yeah. half an hour before you left. <laughs> you go back in time. That's, yeah, that's and I would then I would sleep on the plane. I'd get there, I'd do interviews and stuff, and then I'd play two shows at the Baked Potato, and then I'd fly, get out, and fly then back home to Sydney the next day. And that that was my investment in myself. Right. You know, and so the you, people don't realize that. It takes that kind of commitment to get going, you know. So there's a whole young generation out there who thought that I started back in, uh, you know, 2003 or something. But I started playing music in 1959. It was a long time, right. and so I was doing stuff like coming here to Nashville, meeting people, you know, networking, meeting guitar clubs, and I started out real small. And I just kept at it and kept at it until there was no room for the audience. The place was packed and there was a couple of hundred people outside who couldn't get in. Then I knew, okay, now I've got to get some help. I've got to get an agent and all that sort of stuff. And I, and, and I did all that. And I built it by hand. I built my audience by hand. And that's, I mean, it's so, it, it, all of this is such a great lesson for anybody that, that um, I, 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 always, I always try to explain when people try to f figure at least my life in music, um, I've been doing it 31 years, and I said, yeah. you ever the concept of 10,000 hours? They're like, yeah. I said, well, add another 10 onto that and another five onto the 10. So I've been doing this, you know, it's been morning, noon, and night, and nobody's ever knocked on my door saying, going, here's a life-changing opportunity. You have to go find those opportunities. That's exactly right. And, and you make your own work and you make your own luck by That's sheer right. attrition. That's know? right. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, uh, you sound today the way you, you've really always sounded. You just have a better idea of how to get what you're looking for. And I'm the same. You know, like, I get booked for... Um, Bluegrass festivals, blues festivals, rock and roll festivals, country festivals, you name it. I, my music fits in anywhere. And right. I just come out there uh, and I, I like, I don't do anything different from one festival to the other. Some nights I play, I'll play guitar boogie for half an hour and right. I'll hose the hell out of everybody and play way too much. But right. that's what they're waiting for. Right. So I, I can live with people's criticism, oh, he plays too much, or he's too loud, it's too fast, blah, 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 whatever. I don't give a shit about all that stuff. Right. You're, what you think of me is none of my business. I'm there to do my job and give it all I can because if I don't, then, then I don't deserve to be out there. So, Which? you know, I, I, I look at it as, you know, my way of getting my music across to people and showing young people it's okay to be yourself. 
Just be yourself. Walk out on stage and just be yourself. Don't have to do anything else. Just you're, you're playing, you're, you're doing your best. That's where your thoughts should be. And, and, you know, and I'm already excited about what, what I'm going to do next because it's the unknown, you know. And so um, I, I have, a, I have a, um, uh, a list of songs that goes on forever. I have a repertoire that I can draw on, you know, and people say to me, what do you do if you're having a bad night? Because you must have a bad night sometimes because you're human. And a bad night to me is when the magic isn't there. So I, I always tell, especially young people, you better have some good songs and some good yes. arrangements to lean on. Because mm -hmm. even if you don't feel the magic just try to play them as best you can. And you know what? It's still going to be good. It's still going to be all right. If you've spent your life, you pour your life into playing this tune, you know, like the way I play Beatles tunes and stuff. You know, I pour my everything into it because I love those guys. I love this music. And people are totally entertained out of their minds when I go da, da, do, 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 da, da, do, da. And I play all the same all the parts at the same time, people's jaw hits the ground. And it's, it's only because they haven't thought of it. I have. Right. You know? But it's, it's still... It's the strength of the material. Of it really is. I mean, and it's the arrangements. And like you said, you know, I mean, in the, you've seen it all from, like you say, you've been playing music since 1959. Yeah. You've seen it all come and go. Here's, here's, a, here's a philosophical question for you, or, or maybe okay. it's just a general question. Okay. You think social media and the ability to leave comments on things like YouTube and Instagrams and things, you think that's good or bad? Uh, I think it's, it's bred a, a whole generation of people who think their opinion is very valuable and important, and I don't agree with that. But... What the hell, you know? Like, I'm, I'm one person I know who doesn't walk around giving my opinion to everybody. Why would I think my opinion is that important? You know what I mean? Right. So it's, when, when, like, I can tell you, Joe, the formula for failure is trying to please everybody. It's never going to happen. Like, here's an, here's an example of me not doing that and I thought, and I put so much importance on what people said about my show that I changed my show to try and suit that, and it didn't work. This is the, here's the example. So I'm in Montreal, Canada, and I play an almighty show. I, I, I everything I hoped for just came on, and, and it was just an incredible crowd. Right, the next morning on my, um, on my. Uh, uh, website, people went into the comments section and one guy says, I wish Tommy would slow down a little bit. He's played so many fast songs. I just need him to, to take it easy and, you know, just don't be so full on. Right. So I took that to heart. So the next time I came back to uh, Montreal, I started the show with a couple of ballads. And then I got into stuff and, and I made sure that I played more slow songs and I talked a lot more. Right? Mm -hmm. The next day on my website, the same guy wrote, 
I don't know what's wrong with Tommy. He just doesn't have the energy he used to have. <laughs> and there it is, right? I'm trying to please him. And I, that's wrong. You know, I've got to please me. I, you know, I've, I've got to do things in an honest way. You right. know, I know when to hit people hard. I know when to pull back. I know when I need to talk and, and all that sort of stuff. So I, I'm controlling how the night goes. And it's it's fun, yeah. You know, and it's your job. And it's also your experience on stage that you know you can go and you you could do a show in Toledo, or you could do a show in Paris, you could do a show yeah. in Tokyo, and you could read that crowd despite yeah. in spite of language barriers, cultural barriers, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's 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 like you can read that crowd. And, well, and you go, this is going to work for them. Right. Let me explain something. Uh, there hasn't been a solo acoustic guitar act who, uh, like when I play in uh, places like Japan, I only play the big rock venues. Right. right? So here's this massive PA and light show, <laughs> a thousand lights, and one person on stage with three guitars on a stand and an amp that big. Right. And it's just, it's so big and huge, and no one's done that before. You know the the people that I'm following, uh, like as in I came later, right. were guys like Leo Kotke, yes, um, 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 uh, and and folk singers and all that kind of stuff, right? So no one's really done a full on rock show as a solo acoustic guitar player. That's me, right? Yeah, so. I don't have anyone to study and 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 uh, uh, and that set a that 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 made a path for me to follow. I had to create it, and then I had to leave the M and M's for the younger generation to follow me. You know, but that's what I've been trying to do around the world. And and Chet Atkins started me on that stuff. He said to me, "I'm too old and I hate traveling." He said, "But you need to get what you're doing to the world." You need, right. to, you, you need to get out there and you need to really work it. And he was right. I was already doing it anyway. Right. You know, I used to, uh, I'd do a workshop in Hong Kong and 500 people would come. And right. I'd have to do it in the theater that I was playing that night. And then we'd, we worked out to t move the microphone around and all that. And I, I, I'd call Chet and I'd say, hey, Chet, I'm in Hong Kong. And I'm, I, 500 people came to my workshop. And he'd say, well, tell them to tap their foot. You know, he'd always have a message for me, you know. Right. Tell them what's important. Tap your foot. You know, keep time. Do you ever and pinch so, yourself, though? I mean, like, you're, you're in a Hong Kong, and all these people are showing up for you. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And, and then you can just pick up the phone and go, hey, Chet, as in Chet Atkins. Yeah. You know, and he's your bud, and he's your friend, and yeah. he's giving you advice. Yeah. And you go... How does what a life, you? right? I mean, what a, I mean, what a, what a, what a, what a turn of events in one's life that you're able to have have your idols become somewhat of, you know, they they treat you as contemporaries, and you go. Well, you and I have the same thing. I mean, you know, uh, I've never played with 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 Bibi, but um, I play with Eric, um, and but you know, because uh, I'm at an age where I started really early in my life. I've got to know just about all my heroes. 
from Hank Marvin, Bruce Welsh, um, Chet Atkins, Les Paul, Dwayne Eddy, you know, all the, all the big guys. I've got, to, I've got to know them and tell them what they mean to me. And that, that is a, that's a wonderful thing. And every day I'm grateful. I wake up grateful that I'm, I was born where I was born. My mother turned me on to music. You know, she, she put me in the pram and put me beside the record player. And that's how I'd go to sleep. She, right. she put it into me when I was little. And, and um, my father, God, God rest his soul, he bought me a decent guitar and he bought Phil the same guitar which right. is a Maiden MS-500, a solid body guitar. Uh, we even saw George Harrison playing one once. It's very, yeah. it's very valuable, Maiden, because of the association with, with George. You know, exactly. It's one, the, it's one of the Beatles guitars you for yeah. the Anorex to collect, yeah. Exactly. Well, um, you know, I'm just so grateful that I've been given that opportunity. Um, and... You know, pe people think that that I I must you know live in a ivory tower and have a chauffeur and have people doing it. I don't have any of that shit. I have a humble home and I love to drive my car. That that's what fills my soul, driving right. my cars. Right. And um, um, but I love interacting with other guys who have a similar experience. Like when I was watching you on the cruise. I just thought, wow, what a tone, what a touch. Everything about what you were doing was on a, on a level that I really admire. Um, Thank you. But it's true, Joe. But, you know, I know for a fact that you're here for a good reason. And there, there's a lot of young people out there whose parents love your music and they're turning their kids onto your music. Isn't that cool? Yeah, and, and one of the things I love about our Keeping the Blues Alive Foundation and the cruises is, is like, yeah, people come, they, 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 they'll come to see you, they come to see me, and they, you know, they, they, they buy tickets, and, but they'll always walk away, you know, because the majority of the artists that we have on the, on the cruise are not household names like yourself. And, right. And, and, and they'll always walk away with a discovery, like, hey, have you checked out Larkin Poe? Hey, have yeah. you checked out Tyler Bryant? Hey, have you checked out, you know, you know, there's, you know, uh, Kingfish Ingram, you know, and, 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 and the list goes on and on. Yeah. And that's the, that was the lesson that BB always taught me is you pay it forward. You've been very lucky in your life. You've been, yeah. look at me, I'm sitting in New York city in, in an apartment that I never, I would walk past when I was skint eating peanut butter and jelly and ramen. I'd walk past this very building going, that's where the people in the big leagues live. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's like, exactly. Yeah. And it's a manifest destiny. My yeah. last question before we, we wrap up is, is there any unfinished business at this point? I mean, uh, I think there's always unfinished business, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I haven't been writing very much lately because uh, I haven't really felt inspired to. Um, right. And I, I stopped playing for about a week and I came back to it and I could feel the difference. And I thought, well, this is really interesting, you know. What do I want to do now, you know? I, did, I just did the film. I hope that's going to come out right. either for the Christmas market or in the new year. Um, and, you know, I've been recording stuff here. I've been doing some live um, streams. Um, and I'm just about to record with Trey Hensley and Rob Ikes. They're brilliant, brilliant players 
here. Rob Ikes is a number one Dobro player here in town, and him and Jerry Douglas are, you know, they're about the best guys on the planet right now. Um, and Trey Hensley is an incredible guitar player, plays electric and acoustic and sings. He sings like Merle Haggard. He's got that real beautiful voice. So we're, we're going to record some songs. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just doing that. Um, I have things booked, but they're all, everything's on hold because we don't know what's going to happen, do we? Right. You know. Right. So just you know, do the best I can. I meet people all the time. You know, I, I'm out walking early in the morning, going along the the river up here, the Cumberland River, and and people will come up and say, "Hey, what are you doing? Are you are you going to do any shows?" And you know, so it's great, you know. Um, but you know, there's a song that I, I sang years ago that talked about fame, and it said, um, um, "Fame is just a momentary curse." Right. You know, fame is only as good as the good it can do. The same as money is only as good as the good it can do. Right. So, you know, I I never think about fame or money or any of that sort of stuff. What I want to do is do a good job because I know if I do a good job. That's what's going to make me happy. Not right. the the paycheck's wonderful, and I'm grateful, but it doesn't make me happy. What makes me happy is doing a good job, and that's the bottom line. I keep it as simple as that. Tommy, I I cannot thank you enough for being on this on the program, and and I, I encourage anybody who, not just guitar fans, anybody who wants a career, mm. your 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 knowledge and your perspective on what it takes. To be successful is world class in my book, and and oh, thank you. The, the things you've said today really, to me, sum up what a lot of people's journeys have been who have made it right. past past yeah, the X, X, X point X. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, I, I I can't believe that that uh, you know I've got to meet all my heroes, um, and somehow I forged a life out of. You know, I've I've been in trouble. Uh, I've I've had addictions and uh, you know all that sort of stuff, and I've had to deal with them. And 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 I'm so grateful that I was delivered from all that and shown when I woke up that I had a lot to be grateful for and a lot to be thankful for. Uh, e even just the fact that I'm alive and well is is right. a great thing for me. You know, Tommy, thank you so much. Thank you for loaning me that beautiful Fender Twin on the on the boat, by the way. Oh, no problem. So I hope we get a chance to spank our planks in public again. No, me too. Me and, too. And I love I love what you're doing, Joe, and I and I love you. Thank you. I love you too, Tommy. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Tommy Emmanuel. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe.